Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with Atkins to look at an issue that is central to why engineers do what they do. Why do we construct projects? Why do we develop the built environment? Today, we will explore something that is long overdue. We will look at how, finally, the construction industry is taking a more active approach to social value. The cultural change has been partly enabled by new technologies that allow us to assess the full impact of projects on society. Impacts that sometimes stretch further than people would expect, into communities far from the project itself. Government is also taking a more active interest and will learn about new legislation that's already shaking up UK procurement processes and forcing projects to consider social value right from the start. Here at Engineer Matters, we love a calculator. And before the end of the episode, a tool called the Social Profit Calculator will also be making an appearance. And finally, we discover an interesting link between social value and a Dutch brand of chocolate. But first, social value is relatively new to industry. It has evolved out of earlier ideas such as corporate social responsibility, and there is still a lot of discussion around what it is, what it should actually involve. Before we talk about the modern social value environment, we need to take a step back and try to understand a bit more about this still changing concept. Hi, my name's Penny Anderson. My job title is Associate Director of Social Value for Atkins. Penny has recently joined Atkins and is part of a recent social value push in their business, turning principles into actions. It's an area she's been working in for the past 10 years, most recently as Community Engagement Manager at BAM Construct. And in this time, she's seen the conversation around social value change and change again. It has been a conversation we've been having for a while. It's maybe not always been called social value. It's had various names over the years. I think probably it was CSR for a long time, corporate social responsibility. And at some point there was a switch from that being about doing less bad um, and social value being about doing more good. Penny thinks there has been a shift in recent years. Something is changing in the industry's way of looking at the world. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a, a change, a change of thought, I think, for a couple of reasons. I think, I think one, it is around businesses becoming more purpose-led. The reason a business exists isn't just to, going to be around financial outputs, it's also going to be around the purpose of it as well. And, and now is the time to really kind of dig deep and understand what changes we can all make individually and collectively to, to sort of become, to think differently about value, to think differently about the decisions we make and the consequences of the decisions that we make. Especially so in infrastructure and construction. And I think in particular in, 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 you know, sort of an infrastructure type environment, there's, there is that belief that what we do creates benefit for society, which, which it absolutely does. That's really important to remember. But a perfect definition of social value is elusive to say the least. I wouldn't say I have a concise definition. I think that's, that's the holy grail of social value. I think there's, there's a lot of components that make up social value, but in essence, it's about doing things in a way which add value for people and for planet. And, and that's that if you do one activity for two different people, you might have add very different value for those two different people, depending on their, their start point. But there's several core components to social value that are easy enough to identify. These are education, employment, training and skills, 
environment and community. Education covers anything from nursery age up through to university age and teachers. It's finding ways of engaging with education through the work that we do to bring things to life in the classroom. Um, And that is usually for students, but it might be for teachers too. Often teachers have preconceived ideas about careers in particular sectors and the built environment is one where they do have quite set ideas often. So being able to educate teachers around, you know, what what we really do is is, is a really important thing. Um, and also helping to do things like bring bring maths to life for, for a teacher, you know, helping them to see how what they're teaching is relevant in the work that people people actually do. On to skills. And it's not fully clear yet what skills are needed for a workforce to act in a socially valuable way. There'll be more on that later too. I think it's that's a really interesting question, actually, because it's I don't think anyone's quite got to grips with this yet. It's helping our workforce to become conversant in the language of social value is 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 one really important factor. And I think quite often people see it as as really complicated and therefore let's let's just avoid it or let's let somebody else deal with it because it's too complicated. And, and, and actually, if I could be as bold as to say, I think our clients are probably in a similar position to that, you know, and, and some clients are really fluent in what social value means and some really aren't. So if companies can teach their people to be knowledgeable about social value, they can then talk confidently about it to the organisations they're working with and help them to understand it better. Within that topic is green skills and employment. Green skills is something which... I, you know, I, I, and I think a lot of other people are, are just kind of starting to to get to understand and understanding that a lot of the jobs of the future that will be around green, green collar work, for example, we don't know what they look like yet. And we don't know how we transition safely and effectively into those jobs. So the impact of transitioning into those jobs, what does that have on jobs that exist already? Are there any likely to be any unintended consequences around displacing other people out of jobs? Um, you know, by trying to fix an environmental problem, you actually cause a social problem. And finally, community considerations. Making sure that what you do is really what the community needs. It's exactly that. It's really sort of getting to understand what you're doing to support a community and why you're doing it. There's, it's, it's quite easy to, to sort of think, as a, as, a, as a team of, of people, for example, let's go and do a, a volunteering activity be, because it's a, it's a good thing to do. And let's go and paint a, paint a church hall or whatever it may be. And actually, that can cause more problems for the community group you're trying to support than it can solve. And sometimes it actually costs them money to, to get a group of people in um, and get all the materials ready and, you know, and get people to look after them. Whereas in reality, that team probably have some amazing skills that community groups need. And by having the right conversations about what those skills are and what the community group needs, they can do some much more nuanced activity to really make a big difference in the community. So, so yeah, it's, getting, it's really getting under the skin of, of what's needed and defining that and, and, and acting on that. Penny is a fellow of the newly formed Institute of Corporate Responsibility and Sustainability, which is still finding its feet, 
working out what it needs to do and how best to work towards its goals. So it's looking for volunteers and any listeners who might be interested can check out the show notes for a link. But if you are wondering what steps to take on the corporate side, the best advice is to think hard about the nature of your business. I think it's really important to understand if you are making steps towards understanding what social value means for you as a business. It's really kind of thinking about your purpose as a business, thinking about the skills that you have within the business and the knowledge that you have and 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 sort of looking at what's going on in your local community or what within your sphere of influence and understanding what you can really do to make make changes in that community for the better. And if you've got a business that's focused on one particular product that has an impact on a particular part of society, then then focus on that particular part of society and and develop your social value strategy around around that group of people. And that will help then to kind of hang everything else off off what you do. And try not to do millions of things, but try and kind of focus in on what's what's really meaningful for you. So that's the background of social value. But things have changed recently and have changed in a way that's fundamental to the way that we procure our projects. So my name is Peter Mason-Brook. I am a Head of Social Value for an organisation called Faithful and Gold. Faithful and Gold is a large multinational that provides project management, programme management, cost consultancy and building surveying to public sector organisations and to private clients. It's been part of Atkins since 1996. Peter has 30 years of procurement and supply chain experience in a number of sectors. The, the reason why I've got involved with social value in the last couple of years is that there has been a significant shift within national public sector frameworks where, where we are the single sole provider and we have to demonstrate value for money. We'll hear from the CEO of one of the most significant framework providers, Pagabo, later. And a, part, a big part of the value for money aspect is uh, delivering social value. So during project delivery, and as I say, particularly on public sector, with public sector clients, not only do we have to deliver to time and cost, but we have to provide the added value. Really, this is social value. So Peter has been heavily involved in capturing, recording and reporting social value on projects that they have delivered at a national framework level. Particularly over the last two years, it used to be what we used to call the old terminology corporate social responsibility around CSR. And obviously we, we used to obviously capture things that we did from a corporate level. That has significantly changed. And particularly over the last two years, what we've, what we've had to do is deliver social value within the project delivery and not just around what we've done at corporate level. Actual change. Social value nowadays is, is significantly different from what from the the old hat CSR. You know, CSR would be things where we you know we've done charity runs or engage with graduates or uh, apprentices. You know, within our business, social value is 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 uh, a far wider uh, reaching remit in that it's it really means a a change, particularly on a positive impact to an individual. So what we have to now look at doing is. When we're looking and setting up projects, what we have to say is, is what, what is the whole purpose? The purpose of why we're delivering that project to begin with. Peter says that social value isn't something that has happened overnight. But you could be forgiven for thinking that, particularly with the rapid change that has happened over the last 6 to 12 months. Changes in legislation and guidance that have brought social value to the forefront of our thinking we're now looking at how we can maximise social, economic and environmental benefits within project delivery. 
although the most recent document of note was released in December 2020, really social value goes back much further. And in a sense, the modern era of social value begins with the Social Value Act of 2012. At that time, in procurement, everything was about time and cost. The Act requires people who commission public services to think about how they can also secure wider social, economic and environmental benefits. The issue you've got with the Social Value Act is, is that it's not mandated. It's a, it's a you, you could do this. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a recommendation to local authorities and, and, and public sector bodies that social value should take place. And, and as we know at that point in time, a lot of public sector organisations, when it's when it's not mandated, they don't take it on board. They, they feel that they've already got enough on their plates. They already know that you know procurement activity is, is is quite intense. There is a lot of red tape within procurement activity at the moment of time. Add to this a lack of understanding and education, and people shied away from getting involved. A nice piece of legislation, but at that time, without the force of the law, it was less effective than it might have been. When you did get uh, tenders coming through for social value, it would be a question that would be, what have you done on social value for your last last couple of years? Show us show us the evidence of what you've been doing. Not, not, uh, what are you going to drive on social value within within the project? You know, what are you going to commit to? And that hasn't realistically happened until probably two years ago that we started to see, see a shift in, in, in tenders from that perspective. The Act was a bold step and it raised a lot of awareness, but in the grand scheme of things ineffective. Then two years ago, there was a change within procurement legislation and the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply were looking to help and support training by the Crown Commercial Services of all public servant bodies who had some involvement in procurement. This was around 40,000 civil servants. At that moment, the sea change in public procurement began. Then the big year came, 2020. There were two important publications last year for social value the Procurement Policy Note 0620 and the Construction Playbook, which was published in December. The biggest one, you're quite correct, is the Construction Playbook, which was which was produced towards the end of, end of last year. And that's, that is a significant change, not just around social value, but it's, it's almost the, the, what would you call it, the best practice around engagement and so, uh, through, through construction. Um, and there is a section in there referring to a uh, whole around social value. But the, the, the notable point for the construction playbook is that, again, it refers to when you're setting a specification in a, into a procurement activity, it's around the outcome and the output. Not the specification, but the output. Which really fits really, really well within social value and the whole point of social value. When you put in a procurement tender together, and you have a specification, then that specification should be outcome driven. So why are you building that building? Which should be the positive impact it has. Leisure facilities should be in areas with high obesity, for example. Play areas should be near schools. Peter takes a quick breather, but his excitement around the construction playbook is contagious. The interesting facts with the construction playbook is that nearly, I think it's nearly 40 or 50 percent of the of the of the document is all around the early engagement and the early setting up of, of a procurement activity rather than the actual procurement and the and the actual delivery. And, and the reason why I raise that from a social value perspective again is is when you talk around social value, it's, it's identifying the need, identifying the purpose of why you're doing that. And that should be a very important part of 
the, the the message around before you even go to the market, before you even assess the supply chain that's out there, you're looking at the early engagement with the client and early engagement with the local community to set them social value objectives. Again, you need to clearly define within the procurement activity what social value objectives you're trying to achieve. Now, that's that's what you need to do for two reasons. One is because it's got to be considered with the design, but the design team and the contractor, whoever is appointed, should be able to optimise their delivery around social value throughout throughout the project if there is clear definition within the documentation, the tender documentation, of what you're trying to achieve from project throughout the project for social value. So it's back to the point again, if you've got clear definition, clear understanding what you're trying to achieve, then there's a clear message throughout the procurement activity, and then they can get the contractor on the design team to commit to social, social value, and therefore you're optimizing that, that benefit back to, the, back to the client. And that's, that's what it says in the construction playbook, and I, I really agree that that's what you need to do. The negative side of this is that it doesn't actually happen much yet. Although Peter argues that this is why the construction playbook exists, to identify best practice. But the other mountain to climb is that of education. How do we bring social value into procurement? The construction playbook doesn't do that. This comes from PPN 0620, which was released in June 2020. There are five themes in reference to the the, uh, the PPN 0620, and uh, the the idea behind this is is that some of them we, you would have, you would have known beforehand as well. So there's around in, in economic inequality, so we can talk around engagement with supply chain, VCSEs, SMEs. Although they do talk around some of the new sets of classification around supply chain, which could be things like entrepreneurships and startups. And you know, startups being around the innovation and innovative aspect as well around suppliers as well. PPN 0620 contains five themes, COVID-19 recovery, tackling economic inequality, fighting climate change, equal opportunity and well-being. So it's really nice that there are, there are five themes that have really mentioned you know, what you need to do. Uh, we're already seeing that within bids and submissions since January 1st when it came live. And this one, unlike earlier examples, is mandated for central government. So every central government procurement activity has to have at least one of the five social value themes in their bids. And this has to have a minimum weighting of 10%, a huge change from mere recommendations. Peter says that there was a shift in frameworks, especially with regards to public sector work. So we spoke with CEO of Pagabo, Simon Toplas, an expert in procurement with 28 years of experience. Pagabo is effectively a marketplace business to support more effective procurement of construction services in the UK public sector space uh, by offering differentiated, modern and innovative framework agreements and support services. Uh, we currently manage 10 framework agreements and a dynamic purchasing system, uh, of which six are focused on construction and the built environment and the remaining ones being more facilities management focused. Their framework agreements are largely used by local authorities and central government and organisations involved in education, health, healthcare and housing. We've recently celebrated our seventh birthday last November and as we moved into 2021, we, re we recorded that our frameworks have been used on over 1,050 projects uh, across our client base to the tune of uh, almost two and a half billion pounds of project value which has in themselves enabled over three billion pounds uh, in social value. And the most important one for me though, however, is that we've actually returned over 
two million pounds of cash back to the public sector and good causes. The framework procurement model has now been around for decades and it's becoming more finely tuned all the time. Because frameworks are established and then put in place for three or four years, you need good planning to make sure they are appropriate for that full timescale. And Simon says that if you don't make them flexible for changing needs, there is a danger that you will have two fresh years, then two stale years. Pagabo has made social value a core part of its business, and with its reach, this is having a big impact. We've looked at social value from the beginning, but I'd say we've probably made a step change in terms of how we operate social value in our frameworks, uh, probably in the last three years. So Pagaba certainly has, has an approach to social value and how this cascades for our suppliers on our various frameworks. Uh, social value is at the heart of what we do. You know, we make a conscious effort to be as directly involved in order to help clients generate the best social returns possible from their projects. There's no doubt that social value is set to play a bigger part than ever in the future, particularly following on from COVID-19. But especially when it comes to job safeguarding, job creation and the development of employment opportunities in the immediate future. So organisations already deliver uh, some form of social value through their employment, the fact that they employ people, skills development programmes uh, and through working with local supply chains as well, to name but a few areas. But, but the important next step, I guess, is knowing how to accurately measure this activity and how it equates to true benefits for local communities. It's likely that I think we're going to see a significant drive over the coming years regarding industry standards of data collection for social value, especially when it comes to regional differences. There's certainly a need, for, I think, uh, for cross-industry collaboration to build a picture of what good social value looks like uh, around the country for uh, different clients, because uh, it is sourced, of course, and it's very different for each client. Simon says that the construction playbook will have an enormous impact on his business. Yeah, putting out guidance on procurement and strategic supplier relationship management front and centre is, is obviously very good, particularly, you know, I'm, I'm a procurement person through and through. It's a concise document to uh, revitalise the way we should be working. I mean, at the end of the day, we've all got a responsible undertaking, particularly as it's put, you know, public money. So I've been in procurement for almost 30 years now uh, and have been through cycles like this. However, I think the glaring difference now is the focus with the construction playbook, the focus on social value, which we've just discussed, and, uh, and the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050. So, so what? Just looking at the playbook itself, I've read it a few times. I've, I've, um, I've well, I've read it many times actually. As a business, we're aligning ourselves to some key elements to it. But what jumps out for me is that ten out of the fourteen, so ten out of the fourteen key policies in the playbook are in the first of the five phases of procurement. That's the preparation and planning phase. So this section alone is over fifty percent of the playbook itself. So without it sounding like I'm, I'm stating the obvious, if you don't get this right when you're going, to, you know, he, at, the, at the preparation and planning stage, if you don't get that right, then you're going to seriously threaten project success from achieving the best results. I learned very early on in my procurement career that the biggest enemy of a good procurement is lack of time and rushing the preparation and not doing it full justice should be avoided at all costs. But I guess, you know, what does this mean from a framework perspective? Then it's the gold standard for frameworks that stands out for, for, uh, for myself and uh, all my team at Pagabo. And the gold standard is a phrase that comes out in the playbook itself. So how do projects get to that best practice and embody the principles set out in the playbook? It recognises that frameworks are needed as a route to ensure competition and flexibility across public sector projects. 
then playing into the preparation and planning uh, stage, then frameworks just like a traditional tender need to do a tremendous amount of engagement to tease out the policies of the playbook so that, that can be they can be readily adopted and used when calling off from the frameworks. So it goes goes to what I was mentioning you know a moment ago about the preparation of a framework is so important, just like the preparation of any procurement exercise. In terms of the challenging components of the of the construction playbook are it talks about outcome-based specifications now. So, you know, what, what are they? Does the public sector generally know how to describe them? They're, they're very used to, uh, or the public sector is very used to input-based specifications where the delivery of extra services is outlined in a very prescriptive way. And also output-based specifications you know, where achievement is based on measured performance standards. So, you know, could outcome-based specifications and they are more used in the social or people side of government. And how can they be used in the placemaking construction side? Something like, you know, where payment is made upon a desired state or outcome being reached. So that's a very different way of, of, uh, of thinking. And I, but I think you know, we have to grasp that and, and truly understand that as procurement people in the public sector uh, to shape, you know, you know outcome-based specs. I mean, outcome-based specifications can align the client and the provider because reward and risk are based on achieving a mutually agreed goal. Uh, this drives innovation and creativity, uh, as well as reaching outside of current siloed organisations. It also enables the delivery of a, of a tailored service as well, based on the local community's needs. Better roads, better transport links can lead to a whole range of other positive impacts, from connecting underserved communities to better healthcare, to jobs, to education. But how can we quantify, measure and link payment to these additional benefits in an outcome, uh, outcomes-based context? I'll just finish off this piece, just to sort of say, you know, no one size fits all. Uh, indeed, one of the strongest messages I've heard is uh, the need for these outcome-focused approaches to be underpinned by uh, a clear vision for a particular place, uh, one that is defined in consultation with the local community and that has the support of its local leaders. We can't develop outcome-based contracts unless we are clear uh, what those outcomes ought to be, have a robust understanding of what is meaningful and important for a particular community and understand what their aspirations for the local area really are. There's a very useful way to calculate things, a calculator. Here's Peter again to talk about the social profit calculator. Excellent. <laughs> I, like, I like the calculator as well. So Faith and Gold have heavily invested in, in what they call the social profit calculator. It's a uh, digital tool and I think it's from the capability of the of the tool, I think it's one, if not the best within the within the market. Don't get me wrong, there are other calculators that that do some of the functionality better than they do in in the, the SPC. But as an overall, from early engagement with the client to set the social value object objectives, and then tracking and recording and monitoring the social value throughout throughout the project delivery, it is a really useful and powerful tool from that perspective. But the best bit about it from Peter's perspective is at the end of the project you can forecast the social impact for the next 25 years which he says is particularly valuable when working for public sector clients. If at the early, uh, early stages of a, of a project you are looking for funding or looking for going to planning permission if you can identify the social value that will be delivered throughout the, the design phase the construction phase but more importantly, what the, the, the social value would deliver for the next 25 years once the asset is handed over, 
that's really powerful. It almost suggests, you know, what the purpose of why you're trying to deliver, uh, trying to do the asset. So, for example, if you've got a school that's worth, I don't know, nine or ten million pound in in construction fee, and the actual uh, social value that we delivered for the next 25 years is in excess of 35, 40 million. That's 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 the whole purpose of why you're doing it. Not not the you know the oh we need a school because there's, there's low educational needs. Great, there is that purpose. Putting a monetary value on it gives it gravitas and enables quantification of the value to planners. The calculator has around 170 performance metrics around social value. You can sit down with the client and go to go with the client and say, right, Mr. Client, you know, what are you trying to achieve by this by this delivery of this this asset? You know, what is the purpose behind that? And you can almost go down the, the, the KPIs and identify the ones which are most meaningful to the delivery of, the, of this project at the end of the day. The calculator can also change the weighting of its metrics according to sector and also... And the calculator can also do it by um, region as well, measured by region as well, through through GBA and LM3 calculations as well. So it's all based on the NUTS codes, um, but you can actually say wherever that project is or that SSC is, so if there's high, high unemployment, high deprivation, there's a greater positive social value impact than there can be within, within some of the other areas as well. So the calculator is a really powerful tool to, to not just look at the, the, the social value activity, but add a monetary value to that from that, from that perspective. And you can identify against each uh, KPI, the fiscal, fiscal saving, the economic benefit and social value against, against each one. And the social profit calculator is linked to in the show notes. Peter says he wants to see more focus on how to implement a social value approach now that we've got more awareness of what it actually is. He says there is more work to do in other areas too. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting point. Maybe I should come out of my shell, but you know, maybe there's some need of a social value working task group or working task force, which which looks and identifies at some of these these areas that I've already talked around, particularly around skills training. And there are multiple ways industry uses to report social value. So basically there is an inconsistent way of calculating the social value on the on the on an activity. So maybe there is a need for a social value working group that looks to work with central government to how to mandate some of these things, you know, to have a consistent approach. But more importantly, which is what we've talked about here, is skills and training. That's where the issue is. I, I see that there's a big gap. It's getting closer, don't, don't get me wrong, you know, I sound like Mr. Doom and Gloom here. It, it isn't as bad as it was three years ago, four years ago. There's certainly a great awareness. There is more better legislation out there. There is better knowledge and information than there was many years ago. And there's a, and I actually think there is actually a, a greater need and want for people to learn around social value as well. He says there is a passion now that wasn't present a couple of years ago. We've got two or three clients that are big significant so uh, public sector clients now wanting us to help them and get them involved in educating the project teams capital teams you know around driving social value and how to do that and so you can see that that okay maybe some of that's come out from legislation but there is an opportunity from from helping and supporting clients to do that penny has an analogy that brings us on to chocolate she says it helps us think about social value and can remind us of the impact of our actions. Just recently, um, I've discovered a new type of chocolate called Tony's Chocolate Only. Don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> and when you open it, it's all like, it's not in neat rows like most chocolate bars are. It's all shattered into bits. 
so it's all uneven sections. And the reason it's like that is because it's meant to represent the uneven spread of wealth that is, is driven through the industry, through chocolate. How the money for chocolate is divided. How some people get nothing, while some people get everything. And I just, it really hit me as a really powerful story. Um, and it's really good chocolate too. So there's a free advert for Tony's Chocolate Only. We've linked to it in the show notes. But it did get me thinking that actually, as a, as a, both as individuals and as groups of people, whether it's through business or whatever, we have that responsibility to make decisions every time we do something or every time we buy something. And normally buying a bar of chocolate, it's about price, taste, what it looks like, and ease of buying it. We don't think about well, where's it come from? What's the, what has the impact been down the supply chain? What's the impact going to be when I dispose of this waste? Uh, we just think about that one moment that makes us happy for a few seconds. And, and I think I kind of see social value in the same way. You know, we need to, to not just make decisions based on it's what we've always done or it's the right thing to do because the business says it is. It's actually what is the impact of this decision and how can we change that impact how can we make a different decision or rethink that decision to make it? What can we do differently to mean the outputs for the people down the supply chain and the, and the planet at the other end are considered as well as just the, the sort of immediate price and, and ease of use. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Bernadette Ballantyne, Alex Conacher, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Will North, Philo Mitrovic and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written by Alex Conacher and hosted by me, Bernadette Ballantyne. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young and our own social value act is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner Atkins, Faithful and Gould and Pagabo. Thank you for listening. You can find the award-winning Engineering Matters on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Engineering Matters is the podcast that every engineer is listening to.